Jesus' name. It's already been a great week. We've had wonderful things happen all week long here. Friday was magical for Danielle and Micah. His folks were with us in the first. We had a great first service. Place was full, baptized. Precious man just speaks. Who knows what's going to happen here? So we greet all of you, all of you that are watching us online. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 18. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of the people and prepare their heart unto thee. So that's what I'm doing here today. Doing my very best to prepare your heart as you imagine with me what our future will look like. God bless you. You may be seated. I've always believed that the book of direction in the Old Testament is the book of Joshua. If you've been here length of time, I spent weeks talking and teaching about Joshua. I've always been convinced that the book of direction in the New Testament is the book of Ephesians. Every other letter, every other epistle that's written in the New Testament is usually somewhere in it there's a rebuke, there's a correction, there's some type of problem that has to be addressed. Not the book of Ephesians. Six chapters. All of it. These people were blessed with amazing insight and revelatory. Uh, the, The church in Ephesus was light years ahead of everybody else and it is reflected in the book so it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love in the book of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, the Lamb, and it's capital L, the Lamb was slain from from the foundation of the world. When you begin to study the New Testament, you begin to realize that these men had a concept that went like this, that just like every building has a foundation, The building to New Testament writers was the created world. But that created world rested on the foundation of the word. Thus in John it says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word, W-O-R-D, most times translated logos, where you get the word logo or logic from. It can also be translated mind, will, or plan. So it is grammatically correct to say, in the beginning was the plan, and the plan was with God, and the plan was God. According to Revelation 13 and 8, in the plan, before anything was built, 
in the plan was Calvary. The lamb was slain from the foundation. But please notice how carefully this says. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. On his mind was the church, you. And he knew that in order to get you, there would have to be a Calvary. Calvary came after the desire for the church. Calvary was in the foundation. But before there was even a plan for Calvary, he chose us in him before there was even a plan. That's the past. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, watch, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That's the present. Redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of sins. Riches of his grace. He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence and having made known unto us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. Watch. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's the future. So in verse four, he's talking about our past. In verse six, he's talking about our present. In verse 10, he's talking about our future. He chose us in our past. He's accepted us in our present. And one day he will gather us, thus securing our future. So our past is pardoned. Our present is powerful. Our future is promised. This is the fourth of nine messages I'll share with you before the day that forever changes the identity of this church. Next Sunday, Pastor Dan Mitchell from Columbus, Indiana will be our speaker. Dan Mitchell is one of my oldest and dearest friends. I've been married this July. I will be married 42 years. I knew Dan Mitchell before I was ever married. He got cancer, diagnosed with very aggressive cancer several years ago. He was spared, God spared him from cancer, but they gave him way too much chemotherapy. It killed most of his heart. He should have died, except two months ago, they split him from stem to stern and put a brand new heart in his chest. I've always will consider it one of the great honors given to me in my life, but I was if not the last, I was one of the last people that he called before 
they put him under anesthesia. And I told him, you're up to bat on the 28th of March. And he said, I'll be there. (laughs) I'll be there. We're not telling his cardiologist that he'll be here next Sunday. They would never agree. This was the first time he will speak. He spoke in Columbus for a few moments last week. This is his first time to speak after his surgery. He told me, Harold, while I was under, God dealt with me and told me that he was gonna use me to raise $20 million. Now in his mind, that spread out over lots of places. I didn't receive it like that. I'm not saying we're gonna raise $20 million when we do this first offering. What I am saying is, I believe that his coming here will open up a well that we'll have $20 million go through the books of this church. I believe that. I really do. (laughs) I do. And I'm not pronouncing his death because it could be much more than that. I do believe I'll speak at his funeral whenever that will be. But at that day, I want to prove to that crowd the millions of dollars that have gone not just through other churches, but through this one since he came and spoke to us. So it's a great honor for him to be here with us next week. Of course, the women's conference is this week. The gals are going to have an amazing time. Got people coming from Australia, people coming from other parts of the country. It's just going to really... So it'll be drenched in glory by the time we get here next week. (laughs) It'll be great. 83 times in the Bible, I found references to dreams. There were different kinds of dreams, of course. There were what I would call troubling dreams, dreams like those that the butler and the baker had while they were in prison with Joseph. The dream that Pharaoh had and couldn't even remember what he dreamed, he just troubled him, which made it possible for Joseph to step on the stage. There are dreams that brought warnings, like those that in Matthew chapter two, it said the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get your wife and and that little boy and go to Egypt. When the wise men came to where Jesus was born, it says that being warned of God in a dream, that they should not go back to Herod, but go home a different way. I've always loved that verse. I think that's the perfect analogy of a church service. However you come here, it's the will of God for us to go home different. Changed since we came. There's prophetical dreams like those of Joseph when he was just probably 17 years old and he saw his brothers bowing down to him and it it would be 27 years in the future. When they came into that room, they had no idea who he was, but there's a magnificent verse. I always love this verse. It's in Genesis. When Joseph saw those brothers, those 10 brothers of his coming to get some corn, it said, and Joseph 
remembered the dream. Something about going to prison on a trumped up rape charge, something about being behind bars and all that striped sunshine killed that dream, that dream died. But when he saw them brothers of his come in, he remembered, they're gonna come up here and they're gonna bow down in front of me just like I saw years ago. There were dreams of direction. One of my favorite is in 1 Kings chapter three. Solomon, having these massive shoes of his father, now he's got the fill, intimidated. Prays a prayer and says, God, I'm not asking you for money. I'm not asking you to be famous. Would you please give me wisdom to be able to be a good king? And the Lord said, because you didn't ask me for money and you didn't ask me for fame, I'm going to give those to you and wisdom as well. But this verse says, and the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and asked him, what do you want? You realize that the the encounter that changed Solomon's life forever happened while he was asleep. That prayer and that blessing and all of that occurred while he was asleep. This is what Peter said. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Ladies and gentlemen, there are lots of dreams and lots of dreamers, fortune tellers, predictors out there. Like the meteorologist who told us last week it was going to be 60 and it snowed. (laughs) Every week I try to do something for someone Usually I try to do it to where they don't know it's me. I'll either pay for their meal or buy them gas, do something for them. So I needed shaving cream and toothpaste last week and I went to the drugstore. There was this salty old character in front of me. I could tell he was was my kind of guy. So to stir the pot a little bit, as he kept standing here, I said, would you please get out of the way? I need to buy this stuff. You're taking up too much of my time. He laughed. He thought that was amazing. He paid for his stuff and he left. As I'm trying to buy my shaving cream and toothpaste, all of a sudden he comes back and says, I need a, I need a newspaper. I forgot to buy a newspaper. So I took two bucks out of my wallet and put it down and said, Get out of here. I don't want you getting ahead of me again. You take too much time. Your newspaper's paid for. He pushed me out of the way, put 20 bucks down in front of the guy and said, give me the Mega Millions coupons. And he grabbed them Mega Millions lottery tickets and he gave them to me. He said, there you go, pal. I hope you win. (laughs) Friday night, man, I was down in my workshop with my phone waiting for them numbers. Because <laughs> I made a promise to God, I won't keep one dime of this money. Not a dime. I promise you the first thing I'll do is I'll tithe. Second thing I'll do, we'll send a million to missions. Third thing is I'll pay for the whole new building. Bam! I had it all planned out. It was going to be great. Except I didn't get the numbers. 
I needed a more sure word of prophecy. (laughs) There are economists who will forecast the economy and the stock market. There's even a thing known as the futures market where you can basically gamble on the, what the prices are going to be, which I wish I would have done with plywood a while ago. <laughs> when the second war ended, there was a German scientist by the name of Werner von Braun. Germany was years ahead of every other country in the world with rocket technology. They were sending these rockets across the English Channel and bombing London. If they would have had more time, they, they, they could have won. So the Allies captured von Braun and most of his staff and as many rocket pieces as they could and brought them to the United States. Von Braun is the man responsible for the Atlas rocket which took our Apollo astronauts to the moon. But in 1952, Werner von Braun wrote a fictional account known as the Mars Project, in which he talked about a man by the name of Elon, who was going to take people to Mars. And don't you think for a moment that that novel hasn't motivated Elon Musk, who yesterday said, I will be on Mars within seven years. He said, I intend to take the word fiction out of science fiction. But Peter said, there's lots of prophecies and lots of predictions, but you and I have a more sure word than all of the others. I'll tell you why it's so sure. Because we serve the I am of tomorrow. Bible says he's the God that was, God that is, the God that is to come. But when you combine all of these, it it, it will produce a binary term simply am. (laughs) He just am. The God that we serve spans all three time-space relations concurrently. In other words, he's presently in the past, presently in the present, presently in the future. So you don't have to worry about tomorrow because he's already there. In fact, Romans 4 said, he calls things that are not as though they are because he's there and he knows what is and what isn't. He is the am. (laughs) How many times today did you think about, I'm going to die? I've got some very sad news for many of you. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Many of you are going to die. Believing some of you that are in this room right now will literally see the second return of Jesus Christ. Paul said, we shall not all sleep. But a bunch of us in this room right now will be dead when he comes. I don't ever think about dying. I just don't, and yet I'm going to. I was looking at a milk carton the other day. You gotta sell this by this date. I wondered what, how we would live if we 
had our expiration date tattooed on our arm. If we really knew this is the day I'm dying, how would you live? I don't know if I want to know, to be honest with you. I kind of like it the way it's set up. But I don't ever think about dying. And I'll tell you why. I have a more sure word. It's going to be okay. See, I've been in this preaching business a long time and I've been with bunches of them that knew him and I've been with others that didn't. And I'm telling you, you can't fake it when you're dying. Because death is the black sheep in God's pasture. (laughs) I saw it with my dad just a couple months ago. Fell asleep, it's gone. More sure word. I was given this in a prayer meeting several months ago. I've repeated it in many venues since then. Because for those unfortunate people who choose not to serve the Lord, all I can say to you is you better button down your chin strap because your career path is going to be a horrible roller coaster ride of one fall after another. But if you choose to serve Jesus Christ, the word promises of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. See, Jesus, this is 9 and 7 of Isaiah, but in 9 and 6, he is referred to as the Prince of Peace. Ask Prince Charles what he's in charge of right now. Mama just had her 70th anniversary of being on the throne. I'm telling you, if you're a prince, you're in charge of nothing. You're waiting in the wings for the chair to get empty, either by abdication or death. (laughs) But there are other places in the word when he is referred to as the king of peace. See, it's it's not enough for Jesus to be the prince of peace. He's the prince to everybody. That's a prince in promise. A prince waiting to be in charge. But if you'll be wise enough to crown him, king in your life and to put him on the throne of your life. I'll tell you what the Bible says. It's just going to keep getting better of the increase of his government and peace. There'll be no end. Your future is a bright one filled with the promise that as the governments of this world continue to decline and peace continues to elude and even disappear to the believer, his rule and governing is going to keep getting better and his peace will keep pace with his governing. There will be no end to the increase. It's just gonna keep getting better. What a deal. No wonder it says you got ashes. How about trading ashes for beauty? What a deal. You got drab gray. How about trading it in for some purple and some red? Take away that, those, those, those despairing garments and put on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Ha. My father-in-law told me a wonderful story one time that when his first real job was working for Sears and Roebuck in Ohio, 
Richard Sears and Alva Roebuck started their mail order company in 1883 in Chicago. They were the Amazon of their day. You could buy a whole house from the Sears and Roebuck catalog back then. Two years after starting the company, Alva wanted Richard to buy him out. So Richard Sears gave his partner the unheard of amount of $20,000 in 1885. Sounded like a lot of money. Alva should have stuck around. That has nothing to do with my message. It's just one of them quirky things that pops into my head while I'm teaching sometimes. Let's get back to my father-in-law. <laughs> he worked as an appliance salesman for Sears in a newly renovated building in Ohio. And he was amazed after working in that completely renovated building for three months that they were all told were relocating. He asked his supervisor, why was all of this money wasted on remodeling a building when you knew we would only be here for a short amount of time? His supervisor incredulously looked at him and said, Paul, this is Sears. We don't sell washing machines out of a storefront. When David was acquiring materials to build the temple, he said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house of the Lord that is to be builded must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory. I will therefore make preparation for it. There's such great stories here. David said, I live in a house of cedar. My God lives in a house of tents and tarps. See, in your Bible and mine, it says the outside of Moses' tabernacle was covered in badger skins. That's not what it says in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says manatee. To this day, the number one diving destination in the world, the most diverse aquaculture in the world is in the Red Sea in Egypt. So it does not surprise me that the word is there in Hebrew. Manatees. They're like the Michelin men of the seal world. Just big blubber blobs, but that hide. Wow, it's impervious. Folded, unfolded, folded, unfolded. You have to understand that when David makes that statement, the tabernacle of Moses is 400 years old. I promise you the manatee skins were worn and David was ashamed because every day he came home, he was filled with this aroma of the cedars of Lebanon that were, his house was made out of. Like a giant walk-in closet. But God lives in a house of skins. Every other false God's got a house, big house. I'm going to build my God a house. And to the most ambitious spiritual dream he ever had to build his God a new church house. You know what God told him? No, not going to let you do it. How would you feel if after all the years of serving God, when you had this amazing ambition 
to glorify God, he told you flat out, no. <laughs> I'll tell you what it says. And David went into that old worn out tabernacle. It said he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. <laughs> you see, Adam and Eve lost paradise over their inability to absorb and process one no. Everything else in that garden was yes, 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 yes. You want to eat, eat that? Yes. You want to have other? Yes. How about that? No. <laughs> I'm going to build my God a house. It's for the king of kings. It's going to be magnificent. A word that I can't find anywhere else in the Bible. Magnificent. I'll be completely honest with you. Last year, like every year, we gave a lot of money to a lot of causes. We bought food for the hungry. We bought generators for disaster relief in Louisiana and in Kentucky and Arkansas. I do not know how many pallets of water we purchased or diapers and other sundries that were needed. But you want to know where the money went to that we sent to Paraguay and we just sent another bunch pile of it last week, Paraguay, to build a building, to build a building. See, in Paraguay, the boys go to school, girls don't, but my friend Joseph and Loretta had a burden to build a school for girls. We've been with them from the beginning. We have been a major donor to that project. Because of our latest contribution they'll be able to service 500 students as opposed to 350. There is a three-year waiting list for kids to get into that school. And now the parents are lobbying that their boys can come because the test scores are better than anywhere else. But our money went to computers and desks and buildings. We sent a lot of money to Bangladesh, to the Corbins, to a five-story Bible school, a training facility for new pastors and teachers. We've done it in Central America. We've done it in Brazil. We've done it in Africa. It went to buildings. Why? Because you have to have a place to bring them. You just have to. I've heard the arguments about house church and small groups. No small groups got a mortgage on a church house. And you won't be here very long. In fact, every week you're gonna hear about life groups and they were magnificent last week again. But small groups don't do big things unless they are banded together with other groups. No, they may not have a mortgage, them 12 people meeting in that house. But I'll tell you what else they don't have. A great missions vision. Without a doubt, the greatest deterrent to world war is the most complicated machine in existence today. The modern nuclear submarine. It takes a decade to build. It has over one million moving parts. The latest submarine commissioned in the United States Navy fleet is the Delaware. 
It still has nine years left to be built. It has a budget of $12.8 billion. That's nine zeros. One of these Ohio-class submarines carries 24 Trident missiles. And while most of the numbers are closely guarded secrets, it's generally conceded that each one of these missiles carries at least eight independently targeted missiles called warheads. Each of these warheads contain 475 kilotons of TNT. It's a little complicated because one measurement is metric and the other is imperial. But a kilo is a metric measurement of 1,000. Thus a kiloton is 1,000 tons. But in the imperial world, a ton is 2,000 pounds. So you take 475 times 1,000 times 2,000 and you're gonna come very close to one billion, one billion <laughs> tons of TNT. And this is just one of 192 warheads that are on these submarines. This is more destructive power than all of the bombs dropped by all of the nations in the Second World War. Thus the word MAD, an acronym which means mutually assured destruction. Because if the day ever came that Mr. Putin shot nuclear missiles to destroy the United States, I promise you that right now, lurking in the crevices of the oceans are these boomers. And yeah, he may blow up the United States, but we're gonna blow him up back. And that's the deterrent. Yeah, you may get us, but you're gonna die in the process. So it's a stalemate. At present, the United States has 14 of these submarines known as boomers. This does not include the submarine fleet of Russia, which has 11, France, China, Great Britain, India, and North Korea. All of them with submarines that carry ballistic missiles. It began in New York City, first known as the Manhattan Project. It was configured in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and it was detonated in the White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico. Our first nuclear bomb. Fat man and little boy, they were called. But the trick to building a bomb, a nuclear bomb, was something called critical mass. Because all nuclear devices work pretty much the same way. Picture an orange. And as you peel that orange to get to the good stuff, you see the, the, the part you eat is similar to the core of the bomb. And the peelings of the orange is actually another bomb that surrounds the core. Because as I understand it, you in fact have two detonations. The first is called an implosion, a shaped charge around something called plutonium. And that implosion drives and directs that energy inward. That implosion pushes this very unstable isotope very, very close and crowds it together. 
This pushing together of the core is known as critical mass. When someone breaks a rack of balls in a game of pool, then you pretty much understand what happens when implosion squeezes this finicky thing together because there's, it runs out of space going inward, so it's got to go somewhere, so it goes out. Thus, explosion. And the energy released when these elements are rearranged is always in the form of heat, and the greatest manifestation of heat is fire. My point is not to bore you with macabre matters. My point is to show you that according to the word, the natural things teach spiritual truths. Howbeit that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, afterward that which is spiritual. If you're going to have a great release of energy, you have to achieve something called critical mass. You have to crowd things into such close proximity that massive amounts of change will occur. This is what the word refers to as unity of the spirit. Ephesians 4 and verse 3. Notice the wording. It doesn't say the spirit of unity. It says the unity of the spirit and spirit is capitalized. You see, this is March Madness now. And I promise you, those basketball teams are unified. But there's no Jesus in any of it. But they are unified. Genesis 11 refers to the people building the Tower of Babel. And it said, the people are one. We are oneness Pentecostals. And that is in referral to our doctrine. But we now must be legitimate oneness Pentecostals in much more than doctrine because this effort we have ventured on will require oneness of purpose and vision. The unity of the spirit is critical mass in kingdom speak. When the unity of the spirit occurs, this unity, like its counterpart, will always be accompanied with massive amounts of life-changing power. I don't have to go through the word, don't have time to teach you about anointing. Suffice it to say, it is the glory of God on you. I've heard people say, let's give God glory. I've never agreed with that statement. That's just Pentecostal ease. Because the Bible says everything we do comes short of glory. We are incapable of manufacturing glory by ourselves. This is why Corinthians said there are different kinds of glory. There's a glory from the stars, from the sun, from the moon. But there is a glory that only comes from him. People say he won't share his glory. That's not Bible. I'll read you Bible. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. He's not saying he won't share his glory with us. He's saying, I'm not giving my glory to false gods. In John 17, 
Jesus talks about the glory that was given to him and says this, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. We're in trouble if we try to take it. However, there is a place in him where he'll share it. And we have to be like the moon because when his glory rests on you, the last thing you want to do is try to hang on to it. You just want to reflect it. You just want it to bounce off of you. (laughs) Because there are times when God shines and people see it in us and on us. Listen to this verse. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, the high priest, and that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. You see, anointing comes on preachers when they are fortunate enough to preach to a unified house. How are we going to build this church? We need a yay and an amen. There has to be a yes coming out of this pulpit, which is met with an amen coming out of these pews. I preached for churches where the church was together, but the preacher was afraid and had no vision. I preached for churches where the preacher had great vision, but he couldn't get the people together. I had a man call me very recently and said, I envy you. He said, there is absolutely no way we could attempt this where I am now because the people are so scattered and the staff is so divided. Anointing will come on the priest when the people are unified. And this anointing is our trump card. It's the amen to the issue, which means so be it. You see, the entertainment industry doesn't have it. The secular music world's been looking for it forever. We are up against massive monsters of worldliness and demonic activity and every high thing that would like to exalt itself above the Lord, who is our shield, our buckler, our defense against these onslaughts. It's when God shares his anointing with us. I argue that that has been his intent from the beginning. You see, from the dawn of time, Paul said he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He saw you. Bible said you were fearfully and wonderfully made. He chose you, it said, when you were in the womb of your mother. And according to Romans chapter eight and verse 30, He designed a career path for your life known as calling. He chose you and then he called what he had chosen. If you will respond to that call, Paul said, whoever he did predestinate, he called. (laughs) And not only will he predestinate a path or calling for you, if you obey that, you'll be justified. That occurs in his name and in his spirit. 
But it said, not only will he predestinate you, he will justify you. And whoever he justifies, he intends to glorify. Not just when he's in us, but when he's on us. (laughs) Oh God. You see, the presence of God comes in two flavors. First, there is the omnipresence of God, which simply means he occupies all time, space dimensions. But there is another thing in the word where we have what is known as the manifest presence of the Lord. He's not just there, but it's like what happened just a moment ago. You can feel him. You can feel him. (laughs) You are stepping out of time and into eternity. A dimension that's never owned a clock into a realm that fulfills the prayer, thy will be done in earth, just like it is in heaven. A little bit of that world invades yours. And according to Paul, you're sitting in a heavenly place. (laughs) Anointing. The original word is kabod. It means heaviness. Not in you, it's something that's on you. That's the word that was fashioned. It's not in the Bible, it's fashioned by the rabbis. Shekinah. It simply means the dwelling place of God. And just as he manifested his presence between those cherubs on that mercy seat years ago, and those dark dankness of that tent was just splattered with light. God. If we'll be unified, his anointing will be on us. You'll feel it. People will see it. And you can't have that kind of closeness and that kind of critical mass for long. Something has to move. Something has to be rearranged. Something has to happen. Massive amounts of power, life-changing power are released. When we're together. When an ant dies, it emits a pheromone that tells all of the other ants it's dead. The rest of the colony immediately begin to drag the dead ant to a place known as the midden, the graveyard. They dragged the dead end out to prevent contamination to the queen. If you apply the same pheromone known as oleic acid to a living ant, not only will the other ants start to drag it to the graveyard, but the ant itself will believe I'm dead and voluntarily allow their own eviction from the colony. But if the ant could just get clean from the pheromone. It'll stop trying to bury itself and leave the graveyard and rejoin the colony. And if by chance I'm speaking to someone somewhere that the enemy has splashed the wrong smell on you, the challenge is clear. Let the word wash you. Join some amazing people in the Bible and get up out of the grave. 
Because the last thing we want to do is contaminate the bride with the wrong smell. We have a mandate, a divine edict to go and make disciples a witness to the uttermost. We're building a new temple, not just for us, but for the believers that he's going to bless us with. And as I tried to show you, he will not give you more than you can bear. And that's not just talking about burdens. That's talking about baby speak, bearing, giving birth. Ladies and gentlemen, we can handle about 350 people right now. We're building something for a little bit more than twice that. Think of that. They just had a youth service, a youth convention at the Somerset Inn. I know the inner workings of that thing. Cost $25,000 to rent that place for two days. There were 770 young people in that room. We have the ability to provide something free of charge to all of those young people. And we can take that same 25,000 and do the work of the ministry with it. David said the Lord is magnified in the midst of the congregation. I know there are some things you can only get by yourself. But I know there are other things that you're never going to get unless you're surrounded with like-minded believers. Think of telescopes and microscopes. If one believer is one power and two Christian is two power, then think how big God can get if you have 800 people focused on the heart of God. And now take it further because it's not just 800. It's 800 times 10,000 and even more because one puts 1,000 to flight and two puts 10,000 and three does 100,000. My God, what can 800 do? We can create a critical mass, a bomb. The Bible said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power the word power in Romans 1 and 16 is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite from. There's dynamite in the gospel. The ability to break bonds, blow open doors. The Bible said, son, you pluck right out of fire. Can you imagine being in hell? Doors are shut, chains are there, locks are on. All of a sudden, bam, it's the church. It's the church. Take me, take me, take me, take me. This is a pulpit. I'm trying to pull people out of the pit. It's the purpose of the church. 